Ephesians chapter 5. If you can't preach after hearing that, you can't preach. <laughs> uh, I'm not asking you to evaluate my preaching. But <laughs> if you can't be motivated to preach, let's put it that way. But anyway, what a great night we had last night. Uh, just a wonderful fellowship here and Noah and Sandra ministering to us and then this morning being ministered to. And uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. As you turn there, you've probably heard it said, be careful of the company you keep. And there have probably been few people in history who needed to adhere to that advice more than Henry Hudson, the famed explorer. Uh, in the 1600s, he had an ambitious spirit and he led four expeditions trying to discover new territories and the fourth and ill-fated journey that Henry Hudson took uh, was in 1610 and 1611 and his desire was to leave London, England to head west and find a passageway to unreached territories. He set out with a crew of 23 men and you're going to find out in just a moment, he probably wished he had chosen a little differently. But as they began to set out, it was, there were a lot of problems and they were not able to go westward. And actually, they ended up traveling south and somewhat eastward along the bay that would later be named after him. And not only was that a problem, but it got very cold in the winter and there was a food shortage, and there was a lot of unsettling of crew members, and all of this led to mutiny. And so a number of those who were traveling with Henry Hudson, they decided to cast out him, his son, and seven other individuals in a small boat, and they sailed back toward London. And Henry Hudson, his son, and the seven others were never heard from again. You know, we never uh, did know, no one ever knew what happened to Henry Hudson. Did he live for a long while or was his survival brief? We don't know if the problems were really just uh, an incorrigible group of men he was working with or was he too hard of a leader and causing those to revolt against him. But we do know this, Henry Hudson didn't choose wisely. He chose to yoke himself with individuals who did not share the same desires and same goals. In fact, when winter began to break or projecting that winter would break, it was his desire to move forward, and that's when the mutiny occurred and the others went back. He was unequally yoked with individuals. You know, for the past two weeks, we've been comparing the unbelieving life and the believing life. And the two are polar opposites. And in the believer's journey in this life, while we're to be friends to everyone, we are not to partner with individuals who manifest the working of the unbelieving life. And Paul reminds us of that again here today. Look at beginning in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God, Ephesians 5, 1, as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. 
but sexual immorality, any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Let's pray. Fathers, we look to your word today, Lord, a very sobering message as we've been looking at the characteristics of the unbelieving life. Lord, you give us this word because you care for us, because we know, Lord, the evil one as an imposter tries to present darkness and the deeds of darkness as bringing fulfillment, but they don't. Lord, only the giving of thanks and the love of Christ through us and, and living obedient to you leads to fulfillment in our lives. So, Lord, speak in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what we've seen the past two weeks, if you've been with us and where we are today, we might call it Christianity 102. Now, Christianity 101, we might say, is how a person is saved. And, and there's an element of that in verse 2. It speaks, Paul writes here in verse 2, about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking at these attributes of the Christian life that we're to put on, that's 102, but we can't graduate to 102 until we really have grasped Christianity 101, and it's this, that we're all sinners, left to ourselves, we're doomed toward hell, but that God loved us enough that he sent Jesus to die for us as a perfect sacrifice that we might be saved. And so we might say Christianity 101 in all of this information, which is simple yet profound, is this justification, that we are made right with God only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So last week and the week before and this week, as we're looking at these attributes that we're to put on, that we're to share rather than to take, that we're to be honest rather than to lie, that we're only to demonstrate anger if it's rightly motivated and not to sit on all that. This isn't a list that we check off to make ourselves right with God. We can't make ourselves right with God. It is only through Jesus Christ. But once we understand Christianity 101, then we begin to live the Christian life. And as we live the Christian life, we need the instruction of God's word. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to understand this, Christian, this Christianity that we're called to live. And so we've seen in the last two weeks, two weeks ago we looked at the general characteristics of an unbeliever's life. And you remember some of them, that it's a, a life not based on knowledge, it's a life that is ignorant of God, a life marked by a hardness of heart. We talked about the irony that it's a, a lifeless life and how the unbelieving or unregenerate life is a life that is um, uncontrolled, that, the, that there's no control of God or self-control that individual's life. Last week we looked at specific attributes of the unbelieving life of stealing. We talked about how in the workplace, remember, how we're to give a day's work for a day's pay. We looked at honesty and uh, 
Uh, I shared that illustration when I stood outside when I was a teenager and told my sister to say I wasn't in and how I was misleading, but how as Christians we're not to mislead individuals. We talked about living a life, of course, being anger-free and all of these things that we're looking at in the specific area. So we looked two weeks ago at the general characteristics of the unbelieving life, last week the specific attributes, and simply put to this point, the Christian life is to have nothing in common with the unbelieving life, that it is to be a distinct life. Notice what Paul writes here uh, this morning in verse 7. Therefore, in speaking of the unbelievers, do not become their partners. In other words, uh, borrowing from that opening illustration, uh, don't set sail with people who aren't headed in the same direction as you. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we don't befriend individuals who are unbelievers. How will they come to know Christ apart from us? But we are not to yoke ourselves in the conduct and in the lifestyle of the unbeliever. That's very interesting. In chapter 3 and verse 6, he used this same word we see here in chapter 5 and verse 7, partner. And in that, he was talking about the new relationship that these new Christians had in Ephesus. And he said, you're partners with your Jewish brothers and sisters in the promises. And so he's saying there in chapter 3, verse 6, you're partners with your fellow believers. You're not second-rate believers. You are yoked. You're partnered with them. But here he says, we're not to partner with the lifestyle and the activities of unbelievers. So as we look today, really simply our text, we might summarize in two commands, two primary commands. There are some others. But these two commands are found in the first verse, Ephesians 5.1, and in the last verse, Ephesians 5.8. In these two verses, these two commands sandwich what is found between it. Paul writes in verse 1, be imitators of God. And then in verse 8, he adds, live as children of the light. Now, if we could just get those two commands straight, we'd be okay. We wouldn't, there would be no need for a checklist. We would know everything with God would be right. If we would be imitators of God and if we would live as we're called to be children of the light. So I want to look at each of these two commands as well as some other admonitions uh, between them today. But first, Paul says, be imitators of God. Imitators is a translation of Greek word called mimetai. And, and when I say that, you probably pick up the English word that comes from it, mimic. When we mimic someone, what do we do? We impersonate. We try to emulate. We act like that person. I have a friend that does great impersonations, and, and we chuckle because he can sound just like the person that he's acting like. And so Paul is saying here that we're to be imitators of God, that we are to be like God, and we know from these last two weeks of our study and today that that means we're going to live differently from most people. We're going to live differently from people who are not aware of God, as we saw two weeks ago, who, who don't have a soft heart toward God, who are, are living a, a lifeless existence and, and an uncontrolled life. And we'll look at that today. 
But Paul is appealing here to the Ephesians' distinctiveness in their world. And you and I, in our work world, in our school, we should be different. People should see something different within us in attractiveness. It's going to mean that there's some things that we put on, as we saw, some things that we put off, some things that we're involved in, some other things that we're not. But we shouldn't be surprised that God expects this of believers. In fact, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, when he called the nation of Israel out, he said, even before he gave the Ten Commandments, that Israel, the nation, was his own possession. And by the way, God doesn't change his plans. While we're included in God's plan, I believe on the authority of God's word that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. All right? Israel's God's chosen people. And then he follows that by, and he says that you're to be holy in Leviticus to the nation, as I'm holy. Now in 1 Peter, he says the same thing to believers in Christ who are from all uh, walks of life, all ethnicities. He said in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And then he says, be holy because I'm holy. Does it sound familiar? The same thing that is described to the nation of Israel is also described to believers. And what it means is this, we're to be different. You know, we look at all the problems around us and we begin to complain. And we can be guilty of it, can't we? But we never look back and say, are we not being what we ought to be? As Christians, we should be. How do we flesh that out? Well, we've seen it in the last few weeks. We're not to harbor bitterness. If we harbor bitterness, what does that say to the people who know us? That person's no different from me. We're not to be sinfully angry. There are things we should be angry about. We've talked about them. Injustices. If we see someone treated unfairly, unrighteously, that should anger us. We should also be angry at our own sin. When we see our own children, many of us, we're more angry at other people's sin than our own sin. We need to be angry about it enough to change. We talked about how Christians not to be uh, an embittered person, not to be a person who holds on to, to offenses. We're not to carry on in coarse language. It's very interesting that both in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul addresses this. Now understand, he's speaking to Christians here. He's not speaking to unbelievers. We would expect that uh, in a community of unbelievers, but he's speaking to Christians in, in this context. And so after that, in, in verse 2, he tells us how we're to walk. We're to walk in love. If we're going to imitate God, we walk in love. And this is a, a continual way of conduct. If we're going to imitate God, we'll practice a sacrificial love. What about your friends? Can they depend on you, Christian? Are, are you the type of person that makes a sacrifice for another? Are you the person in the workplace when someone says, I really need something and I know I can call on that person and they'll set down what they're doing in order to help me? Can I depend on that person? If we're going to imitate God, we need a sacrificial love. Now, I, I want to jump for just a moment to an aside. And as we look at, at chapter 5 in verse 2, again, it takes us back to Christianity 101. 
And that's this, that we're justified and we're right with God only through what Christ has done for us. And in verse 2, it says that Christ was a sacrificial offering, his life, and it was a fragrant offering. In other words, it wasn't just a sacrifice, but it was acceptable. It was efficient. It was rightly intended. Now, we can make sacrifices, and they not be the best of sacrifices, but, but this was the right sacrifice, his, his love for us, the perfect sacrifice, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a fragrant offering, a fragrant offering. I've lost my place here, so I'm going to move on. But in contrast to Jesus' love, we see this, the love the world offers. And this is not a righteous love. This is eros. It's a sensual thing. It's not love in its pure form. It takes. Look at verse 3. And pray for me, church. In verse 3, he says, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. We live in a sex-crazed, sex-confused, immorality-driven world. We do. And it should burden us as the light, as the church. People are confused about their gender. They're confused about sexuality. They're confused about this. They're people who are in bondage in sexuality. And these things that are mentioned in verse 3, they're all self-serving. All of these, the dark pornography-driven business garners over $12 billion a year. That's more than CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. One correspondent, I don't think he was a believer, but he said the pornography business, if you call that, and we put it in... It's an illicit business. It's like the crazy aunt in the attic. Everyone knows she is there, but you can't say anything about it. Have you ever thought about that? We watch the news. They complain about everything, about this person, that person, this policy. How many people have you heard complaining about pornography on the news? You don't hear it. It is the silent killer. The world is silent about the atrocity. The majority of women's advocacy groups are strangely silent about this darkness that degrades women, ruins homes, makes men and women act like animals. The scripture says, Christian, there's no room for that in the believer's world. You know, as I was thinking about preaching this today, it is a burden, but there's so many victories and, and if you know me, I try to be an encourager. So I want to encourage you today. I want to be soberly true. This is an unacceptable lifestyle. But to encourage you, I want you to know I have heard of many people who have been freed from bondage to pornography. I have witnessed individuals that I've been close to, more than a handful, who have at one time in their lives been under the stronghold of that and who have been freed from it. 
And so the devil, if you're caught in that today, he is wanting you to say, you're, you're no good. You should be ashamed. You can't. But on the authority of God's word, God can free you. God can free you from it. But you must participate with him in it. In order to be freed from it, you must say, God, I have a struggle with this. God, help me with it. God, free me from it. Scripture says these things, they're not even to be heard about us. Double entendres. That's words that have double meaning. And people will chuckle at it. It'll be a direct meaning that everybody knows, and then there'll be a subliminal meaning that is trashy. And, and we see it. You turn on the television tonight, you'll see it everywhere. Off limits for the believer. Verse 4 tells us that such speech is not suitable for the believer. Our language should be marked by thanksgiving, by encouragement, by the things of God. Paul summarizes the thought in a, another epistle that he writes. He says, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in evil. Listen to that. Don't be childish in your thinking. Be mature. Be a thinking person. But in regard to evil, be like an infant. I've shared before, uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers is, uh, passed away probably 10, 15 years ago, one of my favorite preachers and one of my friends, uh, uh, Dr. Gene Lee, actually served on some boards with Dr. Rogers, and he said, Rick, he just rose up even among uh, a group of large denominational leaders, and he said, we might be talking about what's going on in contemporary culture, not that it was anything trashy, I'm not saying that, but he said, Adrian Rogers didn't even have any clue about that. But then when we would begin to talk about spiritual things, he would rise up with a wisdom beyond what you could imagine. That's what we're talking about. Be mature in your thinking, but in regard to evil, uh, be infants but adult in your thinking. Paul makes it clear that those who make such things their practice, comfortable and corruptible conversation, Involved observing and involved in immorality. Their destination is not as part of God's inheritance. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, if these things are, 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 are marking your life, you're not headed in the right direction. The wonderful thing, though, is God is patient with you and God is working and that can be something that you can say that once was true of my life, I once was in that darkness, but now I'm walking in the light. And so as we look at this text, I want to move on to the second commandment in our text this morning and it's this, we find it in verse 8, live in the light. In fact, after he says, therefore, do not become their partners, which we looked at earlier, he says, for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Jesus called himself the light of the world, and then in his Sermon on the Mount, he called his followers the light of the world. And here, Paul says that we are to be children of light. This past week, I was out about eight or nine in the evening, I had refereed a, uh, a youth league ball game, which I was glad our Central Virginia Christian School won their first boys game 
and I happened to referee, I was fair. I did not, I caught it fairly, okay. Um, but after it was over, I had to get my hair cut. After I got that cut, I, I decided to stop in Dillwyn, and, and I won't say where I was, but I was in a public place. I went in, and there were young people. It was just foul language everywhere, just irreverence. And then I was outside, and now I know I shouldn't say which night of the week, but when I was in school, you know, usually Friday or Saturday night, it might get a little, but I mean, it was revving trucks, and I'm thinking, boy, if, if somebody out of town here, they might be intimidated. I mean, the trucks were sitting up high and revving, and, I'm, and I, I mean, I'm comfortable around pretty much everybody, and I sort of slid out the other way. And I thought, we're living in ever-darkening days, and it's not just the youth. In fact, I blame the adults. The adults are to blame. We can't get along. Hatred abounds. Division. Immorality is accepted in too many circles. Our society is headed the wrong way. But it's easy to be a defeatist. It's easy to say, <clears throat> let's just give up. But that's not what God's word calls us to do. I'll be honest, sometimes we want to, don't we? We just say, God, we're a minority here. But we don't have the option. We're commanded to be light. You know, darkness and evil deeds are synonymous. I studied the field of mathematics in, in college. I'm not like Sebastian now. He's the man. But I, I do like math. My favorite area of mathematics was statistics. And uh, so I'm, I'm always uh, enamored with statistics. I'm thinking statistically a lot. I'll weigh out percentages and these things. I said, well, what portion is this? Or what, what amount is this particular? Uh, thing in regard to the whole and one thing that I think about when I ride down 636 and you're going to think where are you going with this Rick but I look at roadside trash all right I'm going somewhere with it and I have a theory that I believe statistics would support roadside area surrounded by wooded area has much more trash than roadside areas that have open fields on each side. Look at it when you go home. Open fields on both sides, a little trash. Trees covering, a lot of trash. Now where am I going, Rick? Darkness, the deeds of darkness come under cover. What are we as Christians called? We're to expose the light. We're to expose the darkness with the light. What does that mean? You say, Rick, you're stupid. No, it's not stupid. Think about it. There's a logical thing here. Deeds that are wrong are easily carried out undercover. But we're called to be the light. So if we're in the workplace and somebody's carrying on coarse language and we say, I don't listen to that. You don't, I'm not saying be judgmental. You may go to that person, not embarrass them. You may go to that person and say, hey, I, I heard you during the lunch hour. You're saying that. I just want you to know 
That, that's a degrading thought. That's not helping the workplace. I love you, brother. I'm not here to embarrass you in front of somebody. See how that happens. Why? Because the fields have less trash. We're called to be light. We're called to be light. We need to live that way. Last night, Noah and Sandra sang a song, and they didn't realize it when they were singing. But it spoke to me. I knew immediately. It's a song I've heard them sing before. But it said this, what's wrong with living right? You ever thought about that? We don't stop. What's wrong with living right? We're not to be ashamed. We're the light. I'm not saying be judgmental. I'm not saying be this. Just be who Christ has called you to be. That's Christianity 102. Two commands. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And be a child of light. Be who you are. If we do that, and people see God in us, then we'll begin to take back. We'll begin to take back person by person, workplace by workplace, community by community. I pray this church would be that. I hope that's your prayer, that we would be a light in the community. Let's pray. Father, you've called us to be like you are. And everywhere we see, you're everything good and everything perfect. And Lord, you also call us to be children of light, to live as we are. Lord, forgive us for the times when we're ashamed to let our light shine. Forgive us, Lord, for the times in our lives when we revert to lifestyles that mark the unbelieving life. But we thank you that Christianity 101 tells us this, that Jesus died for every sin, and if we would but repent, you would forgive. Father, some here today that may be struggling with the grips of sexual immorality, Lord, you know that. I don't. I don't know persons, individuals' lives. Father, maybe they have been fighting this fight. And first, I want to thank you that you're speaking to them. The fact that you're convicting expresses your love for them. Help them, Lord, as they seek to remove these things with your strength alone. And that, Lord, they would be freed from this thing that is weighting them down. Father, we love you. We thank you for your promises and the main promise that Jesus died for us. And that if we would but trust him, we'll live forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.